This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Human brains are wired to respond to immediate and visible threats. Rising seas are hard to notice and can feel like a slow-moving concern. We know a lot about the science now. We know what sea level rise might do and who might be at risk and what the impacts might be. But is that really trickling down to the decisions we make every day that are going to matter? The global south is already being hit by climate disasters fueled by hotter and higher seas that they are barely responsible for causing. Will bringing attention to these stories help ease their plight? Pacific Islands are only responsible for 0.03 of emissions globally, yet stand to lose entire nations. The responsibility lies in the global north, and ultimately the role of the journalists is to really highlight these issues. Reporting on rising seas, up next on Climate One. Twenty of the world's richest countries, mostly in the global north, are responsible for 80% of the carbon pollution that's driving extreme weather and supercharging natural disasters. Yet poorer countries in the global south are experiencing climate-induced disasters first and worst. Wealthier and wider countries in the global north are being hit by climate disruption as well, but they also have more resources to adapt. This dichotomy underlies this year's climate summit in Egypt, where loss and damage payments are expected to be a key focus. In a collaboration with Covering Climate Now, we invited two award-winning journalists to discuss reporting on climate change in their part of the world and bridging the disconnect between the industrialized North and developing South. Lauren Summer is a correspondent for NPR, and Langi Pueva Sherelle Jackson is a reporter for The Guardian and host of the three-part podcast series, An Impossible Choice. The series explores climate disruption the Pacific Islanders are facing. This year, it won Covering Climate Now's Journalism Award for Radio Podcast Series. Jackson opens the first episode with a gripping personal story about delivering her child during a cyclone. It's been a fascinating journey. Growing up in Sabai and Samoa, cyclones and extreme weather events are very much a part of our lives and our existence. So when I was brought on to host An Impossible Choice and I was asked to share my personal story, like any journalist who wants to remain objective and just tell the story, I didn't necessarily want to share my story because I didn't feel that I should be part of the story. But in having conversations with my editors at the time, you know, they really did say, well, actually, you are part of the story. And so you should be part of that narrative. So even though it was hard for me professionally to center myself within the story, I was very much aware that I was both a survivor and an eyewitness to the climate crisis in the Pacific. And then that's how my birth story came up of how my daughter was born in between storms in Samoa. And the fears that come as a new mother, as a, you know, having a child for the first time, and then a cyclone, we just survived Cyclone Evan, which, you know, displaced over 5,000 people in our, in our villages. And then another cyclone was due on the very evening that my daughter was born. So to be able to tell that story and then hear from audiences how they resonated with it, and also just connecting the fact that hardships, that, you know, lives of Pacific Islanders, um, you know, continue irrespective of the extreme weather events. 
that people will continue to live their lives even with the climate crisis and all of the issues that bring. So it was, a, as a journalist, a very challenging time uh, in centering myself in that story. But at the same time, it is the strongest piece of work I've ever done on climate change. And I've used different approaches to try and reach international audiences on climate change. And this was the story that resonated, putting myself in it and telling the story of the people on the ground who were directly impacted by climate change and continue to be impacted by it, uh, really did make a difference. And how have you experienced climate change since then? Well, climate change is very much a part of, of our lives, uh, you know, and Extreme weather events such as intense cyclones, flooding, that's something that happens, you know, on an annual basis. So for us in Samoa, the change in the way that our livelihood options are available to us, so seasonal crops variations have really impacted the way that we have access to food and have changed the diet. Uh, storm surges have increased in coastal areas. And then the availability of certain uh, ocean-based uh, food sources have also been a problem. So this continues to be something that we deal with on a daily basis. Um, professionally, going to town to do an interview and it be flooding uh, is one of those like immediate kind of climate change impacts that one experiences on the islands. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Lauren, you're in the Bay Area and produced an in-depth report on how communities here are preparing for future sea level rise. You know, what does climate disruption feel like to you personally here living on the California coast? Yeah, I think it's an, an interesting moment because, um, you know, obviously wildfires have gotten extreme, have affected many people in the West, but some of the decisions that people make every day um, are climate decisions, and we don't always call them that. And I think where people are building, where they live, and decisions to build more in risky areas, those are all climate decisions. But they're happening in city councils, they're happening in kind of communities, and a lot of times aren't kind of connecting the dots um, in those moments when they make those decisions about who's going to be there in the future and, and might be at risk. And so I think those are the types of stories I tend to gravitate to, which is like, we know a lot about the science now. We know what sea level rise might do and who might be at risk and what the impacts might be. But is that really trickling down to the decisions we make every day that are going to matter? I'm not sure it is. Right. They're, they're kind of separated. Climate's still in that faraway future frame for a a lot of people. Lauren, your work focused on the question of who should pay for climate resilience and protection, especially in a place where tech giants have established their headquarters. Tell us a little bit about what's at stake for the communities here, like East Palo Alto and the wealthy ones nearby. Yeah, it really, that particular story is kind of an interesting microcosm of this big question of fairness in climate change. Like who should pay, who should pay for the damage that have been done and who should pay to protect people in the future. So in particular, um, Menlo Park, which is in kind of in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, you know, it has Facebook or Meta as it's called now at their headquarters. They've, you know, spent a, a huge amount of money building a massive campus right on the waterfront there um, in an area where it's very clear that, you know, even by mid-century, there'll be risk from from storm surge and sea level rise. It's also right next to East Palo Alto is one of, one of the last kind of low-income communities of color kind of left in Silicon Valley, which is extremely expensive area to live. They're also right on the waterfront. They also need 
protection. And so as the community in general is looking at, well, what do we build? Do we build a levy? Do we build some sort of protection? This question of who should pay, what's fair, is really kind of, it's coming up. It's causing a lot of tension in the community. And, and it's kind of right on the forefront of like a lot of places haven't quite figured this out yet. Right. And, and, uh, and Sherelle, that, you know, does that come up also in Samoa that, you know, what Lauren's describing within, you know, one county basically is a microcosm for what's happening globally between the North and the South. Your reaction when you hear about these fights? It's like the constant fight at climate negotiations. It's very interesting because among Pacific Island leaders and communities, our cultures are not based on confrontation. So it's very rare to hear a Pacific leader really confront the, you know, high emitting nations on the problem that they caused and we're paying for. But what you do hear uh, among Pacific Island leaders is accountability um, and the need to own up to their responsibility. And this is very much the case when we're calling uh, Australia to account for their role in the problem. My work has been focused uh, internally on creating awareness among Pacific Islanders that it's not our fault, you know, that this is the problem caused by others and that our communities are suffering as a result. Because what you'll find and what you'll hear, especially if you're listening in local languages, is that Pacific Islanders, some of them are taking this personally as our responsibility and our fault that the earth is suffering. So it's very interesting that those who've done the least are also taking some responsibilities morally uh, for what has happened and for the climate crisis. Lauren, do you find that, you know, this sort of accountability recognition when you're, we're talking obviously at very different scales or we're talking with Sherelle about a very human scale and, and, you know, Lauren, your work is with like, you know, zillion dollar corporations, although run by humans. Um, but are you hearing, you know, acknowledgements of accountability? Yeah, I think the project that they're trying to build there in that particular spot it's going to be expensive. I think the early cost estimates are probably an underestimate. So you have Meta, Facebook, putting in some money and then East Palo Alto putting in almost exactly the same amount of money. And then they're hoping that the bulk of it is coming from the federal government to build it. And so I think that's been a major source of tension you know, and this kind of other question, which is, you know, East Palo Alto is a community that's been there a long time. Facebook is a place that built knowing that sea level rise was going to be an issue more recently. And so that's where some of these tricky issues come in, which is, is everyone on the waterfront equally responsible? Is when you built, does that, you know, impact how much you should pay and how much risk you took on knowingly? That's, those are the really kind of thorny issues especially if the costs, you know, end up being much more than expected, which is happening with a lot of these huge climate adaptation projects right now. What did you find, Lauren, among the people you talked with in terms of how they feel about these threats? I'm thinking about Mayor Carlos Romero, for example. You know, he's he's been very outspoken that these companies kind of, they've come into these communities you know, there's definitely been tensions about the way the communities have changed and the, and the influence of gentrification as a result of, of kind of this, this kind of Silicon Valley boom. So there was already kind of a little bit of history there. Um, but he's been very outspoken that, you know, they should be paying their way within their means, which would mean he wants to see them do more than they're doing right now. And I think he wants to see 
kind of more of a structure where if you're going to build, if you're going to make a decision to build in a risky area, that there's something baked in that you're taking responsibility, whether it's a development fee, whether it's it's more taxes, whether it's something that's going to help pay for all this infrastructure in the future. Um, but that's a really tough case to make for a lot of cities and communities because they want development, they want housing, they want jobs, they don't want to be doing things that discourage that type of development. Um, and so that's where the real tension comes in. Shrill, I know that it's important to talk about Pacific Islanders not only as victims, that there's leadership, there's adaptation happening. In particular, I'm interested in the uh, former Tuvalu Prime Minister, uh, Enele Sapahoga. Uh, can you tell us his story and how he's seen as someone who came from that region and really made an impact and made people heard? Sure, uh, Greg. And Eliso Poanga, former prime minister of Tuvalu, is really one of these amazing, I like to call him a quiet hero because he's very humble and He's from one of the smaller atoll nations in the Pacific Islands. Like, if you think islands, Pacific Islands are small, Tuvalu is very small. And to have a leader from a country uh, such as Tuvalu rise to the level of global leaders and stand side by side with US, UK, you know, European leaders in the climate platform and in the climate negotiations has really been quite inspiring. And that's really driven from the fact that Enele Sopoanga is intrinsically, or rather that his experience as a Pacific Islander in an atoll nation is really raw. Um, having grown up in Tuvalu and educated in Australia, he not only intellectually understands the issue, but also has firsthand experience of the suffering that his people have gone through. For some context, Tuvalu experiences king tides uh, annually, and king tides are basically an abnormal high tide, um, which causes storm surges. And because it's an atoll nation, it floods the majority of the islands. And you'll see on an annual basis, Tuvaluans holding up their whiteware, their like fridges, holding up fridges, holding up pigs, holding up children, so that they don't drown every time the waves hit. So it's a normal occurrence for them, except it's becoming frequent and it's becoming normalized. So the fact that former Prime Minister Enele Sopoanga raised and brought a very key, he had a very key role in negotiating the Paris Agreement, you know, is something that is not just monumental for the Pacific Islands, but globally it's very significant to have let's be real here, a very insignificant country, an island, play a role in that way uh, in, in negotiating one of the most significant agreements of our time on the climate crisis. Coming up, how personal stories of those most affected by the climate crisis help us understand how interconnected our lives and fates are. Someone in East Palo Alto who had come from Samoa and was very familiar with, with extreme storms and flooding. They had moved somewhere where they thought maybe that they were in different circumstances and they were like, this is way too familiar that we're dealing with this all over again. That's up next. We're speaking with journalist Lauren Summer of NPR and Lange Pueva Sherelle Jackson of The Guardian. 
In both of their reporting, the people they speak with don't want to be forced to leave their homes, even when faced with increasingly dangerous conditions. Let's hear a bit of Lauren Summer's story of East Palo Alto residents Leah and Helena Grew, a mother and daughter who live in a flood zone and are concerned about losing their community because of climate disruption. Because they've seen how other disasters have hit communities of color, you know, like Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. A lot of people were displaced and just didn't return. And that's Leah's fear. They'll move us out to like, sorry, I didn't want to think about it, but we'll get moved out to like Stockton, Sacramento. Lauren, what comes up for you when you hear the Grus saying that and what, what they're facing? Yeah, it's very real for that family because their houses is kind of one of the first that you see, you know, before San Francisco Bay, before all the water. And so her daughter, when she was in high school, started learning about climate change and sea level rise. And she was coming home and saying, Mom, we got to pay attention to this and got her mom involved. Um, and their their goal is really to get their community much more involved. Um their family's from Tonga. There's a large Samoan population in East Palo Alto. There's there's a lot of people that really care about living there and being together and not being moved, as she said. You know, it's what she was talking about is you're talking about two, you know, with traffic maybe three hours away from where they are right now, where you can still find somewhat affordable housing in the Bay Area. So it's not like they're moving to the town next door. You know, it, really, it would be a full displacement. And the community's already faced a lot of gentrification pressure with Silicon Valley growing the way it has. They have a lot of friends that have been priced out that have left the neighborhood, you know, or when their kids grew up, they couldn't afford to live there near their parents. Um, and so I think they, as they, you know, seeing kind of what happened with Hurricane Katrina, where you just had so many people who were already, you know, kind of vulnerable or on the edge, just not being able to kind of rebuild in place and have to move elsewhere. I think that's their fear is that one disaster, one flood would be that thing that would be kind of the disruptive force that would kind of break their community apart. And I'm curious, Lauren, when you're reporting this, you know, talking about um, people in this very wealthy state and this very wealthy country being flooded out, did you ever think about or did others mention Pacific Islanders or these small nation states that are their whole country are facing what you're reporting on on a neighborhood scale? Uh, yeah, my uh, colleagues at KQED uh, in San Francisco did some reporting that was great, which was they spoke to someone in East Palo Alto who had come from Samoa and was very familiar with with extreme storms and flooding. And then in Palo Alto, there have been floods already, so especially when there's really intense rainstorms. There's flooding kind of along this river in East Palo Alto. And so the interview was fascinating because they moved somewhere where they thought maybe that they were in different circumstances. And they were like, this is way too familiar that we're dealing with this all over again. We'll play a clip of that and then we'll get um, Sherelle to respond. So this is KQED reporter Ezra David Romero talking with two Samoans in East Palo Alto. Anytime there's a tsunami at home, all of us connect and emotions rises. I decided to leave because it's too much. And then we come here to America and here is this. He trails off there, but uh, they come here. It's just the same thing they've been facing at home. Uh, Sherelle, your response to hearing, you know, people who leave Pacific Island come to America and face the same thing. I'm, I was actually smiling at that soundbite because 
it's the way that one would translate. Um, I could just hear that in Psalm 1. They were like literally translating that in English. And it's a it's a really frustrating uh, tone that they're using. It's like, okay, so we've moved a whole entire nation thinking that we'll do better. Um, and yet here we are facing the same crisis. There is this perception that, you know, if you move to a developed country, you'll be safer and you can seek refuge elsewhere. Uh, and I can just imagine that couple, you know, thinking, okay, we don't need, need to live on the beach anymore in Samoa and suffer this. This is the strongest way that we have captured uh, the experiences of the climate crisis in Samoa and in the Pacific is really speaking to the people who lived in coastal communities and are impacted directly, whether it be their homes, um, you know, inundated or taken down because of cyclones or their livelihood options being impacted directly uh, as a result of the climate crisis. And Cheryl, you say the choice whether to stay or leave is one of every Pacific Islander has to deal with, whether now or in the future. And, you know, of course, that's difficult for anyone. Yet the connection to homeland is particularly strong in Samoa, like the word for placenta and land, I think are the same. And it's tradition to bury that on your land when, and when a family member passes, they're also buried on the property. So can tell us about, for those who don't fully understand, most Americans don't have that kind of connection with land. We've lost that. Can you tell us a little more about your personal struggle in deciding whether to go or not and what the connection to the land? Well, all across Polynesia and in many Pacific cultures, we are intrinsically tied to land, uh, as you say. And in the podcast, I do explain this. Fanua is the word for the placenta, the afterbirth, and fanua is also the land itself. Um, so it's the same word. And you'll see, I think in uh, Maori language, it's the same as well. So across Polynesian cultures, this is tied and culture and land and environment are very much tied. So without a healthy environment or an intact piece of land, you also lose a lot of the languages and cultural references that we have. So in the birth story of a Samoan, your first the afterbirth is buried on your land, marking where you stay. And this is your ancestral land. And then the umbilical cord of the baby, once it drops off, is also buried on the land, usually with a tree. And then when you die, you are also buried on that land. And you'll often find in Samoa and in other Pacific Island countries that we sometimes bury our dead in our homes. Because the homes are open, you'll see like graves within the front porch of the house because we're still related, we're still very much a part of the family, whether or not you've died 100 years ago, 50 years ago, or yesterday, that people are still very much a part of that land. Now, where this becomes a climate story is that for atoll nations such as Marshall Islands, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Tokelau, when they are forced to leave because there will be no more land or it's fully submerged or it's no longer inhabitable, you cannot just up and leave a piece of land as you would say in the States, in the US, where you're like, okay, I have an apartment here, I own a home, I can go buy a home somewhere else. No, this is something that your ancestors grew up in, you're born into this land, your children, your children's children are supposed to be 
on this land forever, irrespective of where you go in the world. For my children, they will always have land in my home village, our ancestral land that we will always go back to. Like infinity and beyond, like it's always going to be there. So to then say to a Pacific Islander, this is no longer yours because the ocean has taken over. That's essentially saying cutting off. It's almost saying you're cutting off the rest of their lineage. And lineage is very much a part of our, you know, of our upbringing. So the the way that we frame this podcast is to really to ask those hard questions of the people that do stand to lose their entire nations. I've interviewed communities in Fiji who were, their whole villages were wiped out by Cyclone Winston in 2016. And they're like, yeah, we're going to rebuild right here, which ties to Lauren's point of you do have some responsibility on where you build. It's a climate decision. But when it comes to islands and you don't have any other choice of location, you rebuild there because culturally that's where you are and where you will always be. It almost, it's almost in, in a sense, it's not even a choice. You just stay. And Lauren, in your reporting, there's other forces at work, more commerce than culture. You know, there's essential tension between cities that you write about that want development and tax revenue, yet they're on the hook for protecting those development from rising waters and lack the resources to pay for that. Can you share some of what you learned about these decisions with big tech firms, Google, Facebook, in terms of how that's playing out for them, shaping their decisions about where they're locating and how long they're staying there. Yeah. Um, the other example I reported on um, was down a little bit further down San Francisco Bay in, in a town called Sunnyvale. And, and that's a spot where Google has bought a huge number of properties just in recent years. Um, so they bought this big area of parcels just right on the water. And it's an area that the city, you know, is really interested in having development. And Google is very interested in developing more sustainably. So more walkable neighborhoods, more green spaces, more housing, because obviously housing is in huge demand in the Bay Area. But of course, it's right on the shoreline. It's protected by a levy that, you know, is is not adequate. It's not up to federal standards. It would not protect that area. And so there's a real kind of conundrum, which is like, well, okay, do we let people put housing there and people who will live there before a new levy would be built because it, it's, you know, it's an extremely long and expensive process to get these big projects built. Do we let people live there before we know it's protected? Do we wait till a project like that is built before we, before we let them come in? I mean, that's a really tough call in a place where housing is in such short supply. But, you know, like this, the, once something is there, it's really hard to undo. Like if you pour concrete and put homes there and those decisions last, you know, decades, centuries. And so that moment that that decision is made is really important when it comes to climate change. And one of the people you interview, A.R. Sider, says this behavior, you know, is kind of foolish. It's like putting people at risk. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, kind of in her research is, has really looked at this this kind of pattern where we keep growing and expanding into risky areas. And then the really tough choices of what do you do in those communities if you people do need to move. And so I think 
you know, from her point of view, if you don't have to think about managed retreat, as it's called, right, of actually having to relocate people and buy them out or, or find new places to live, like that's the best case scenario. You can avoid those tough decisions by not building homes there in the first place with what we know today. Cheryl, I'm wondering, you know, just hearing these stories of a place that, that you know, the, the States, you've, you know, we're in the States recently, how you view these kinds of conversations compared to when, when the resource disparity is so great? I love hearing Lauren's reporting because I feel like that's the, the impact of the climate crisis have finally reached those with the means to do something about it. Um, and then the impacts reaching those with means means that they'll finally understand the plight of Pacific Islanders. And it's sad that it takes a firsthand experiences of, you know, the West and of the global North for them to understand what Pacific Islanders have been going through for many, many years and have been trying to raise attention to it. It's interesting because, you know, fascinating your reporting with uh, worlds apart, and yet there's these interesting strands that connect them. Some of the onset is fast, some some of it's slow. Um, there's a lot of wealth. There's there's less material wealth, a lot of rich cultural uh, wealth. Um, Sherelle, your reporting covers um, some of the day-to-day struggles of Pacific Islanders already facing because of warming temperatures. In particular, you share the story of Vanessa, your friend, who experienced sudden flooding during a storm when a wall all of water rushed down around their house where she lived and her husband and four kids. Let's hear a bit of that story. So my husband, he said to me, get the kids, get the kids, grab the kids. And I quickly ran in. He came as well. And my baby was sitting on the toilet at that time. I grabbed him by the shirt, didn't even have time to pull his undies up because the water was already rising, it was getting to our knees. So by the time we got out of the house, we were already struggling. That's how quick the water came. Their first plan was to get in the car and drive to safety. But once outside, they realized their car had been washed away. The water was rapidly rising. We were really struggling. I had two kids with me, both hands. We had two kids. And, um, and there was a point where we were looking at each other like we're struggling are we going to make a decision to let one of them go at one point we didn't really have a choice it was the water was really strong and if we were to hold on with our hands full with with the kids all of us would be gone so um it was the most scariest (laughs) feeling ever Thankfully, they all survived there. But that just gives me chills, Sherelle and Lauren, as a parent thinking about having to let go one of your children or to hold on or else the whole family might go under. How do you deal with hearing that and also the after effects of these experiences? Vanessa's story is one of the most heartbreaking I've ever had to report on, you know, as a mother. And her village was five villages away from mine, you know. And her children are around the same age as mine. So to hear her say, well, there was this point where I was going to have to choose which kid to to carry up. It stays with you. And the thing with Vanessa's story is it's one of many stories. 
it's just one story. It's, it doesn't belittle it, but what it does do is it really elevates the fact that there are people who continue to face these existential issues in the Pacific and on a regular basis. You know, I've reported on these issues for many, many years, and to hear Vanessa's story um, is to really hear about the climate crisis on the ground. And I want to go back to the issue of resources and the disparity between how the poor and how the rich experience climate change. For this particular story, Vanessa and her husband owned a business. There were two buildings. They could climb up and save themselves. Eventually, they did, thankfully, on top of the warehouse um, that they owned. Uh, Everything was gone and wiped away. But what of the families who didn't have that? And many throughout the years have died because you had no place to go when your when your home is is wiped. So it is it is something that um, as a journalist we do need to look into further the disparity uh, between the experiences that those with the means have and those without the means. Because when a wealthy person suffers climate, they can build higher, they can build somewhere else, they can afford. The Metas and the Googles can do this. The two Valus and the Tokelaus, they have no choice. They cannot build a new island. They cannot afford to do that. So this experience of climate change when you have the means to save yourself afterwards is so very different to the plight of Pacific Islands where you just simply don't have the land or the resources to, you know, continue having the life that you've always wanted to lead uh, as a Pacific Islander. And I'll just like share the story of how, you know, I have survived many cyclones in the past, but the most recent cyclone, Cyclone Evan, my mom and I were in um, my house in town, which is on stilts. And I remember the first day of the cyclone, my mother saying, uh, my mom's a high chief and she survived (laughs) a whole lot of stuff growing up. And she said, it's very, it's very quiet. Like the cyclone is very quiet. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, you don't hear the sound of the wind. And that's because the house is a Western styled house. It had walls, windows, doors. It was well protected. But our earlier experiences of cyclones were in open valleys, traditional huts. And you hear the wind. It's like right in your face and you have no choice. So for me, that was like this picture of how, you know, resources can protect you from extreme weather events. Um, And that's really, for me, very interesting to hear Lawrence reporting compared to how I've reported as well. And that disparity between those with the means and without. And that's, I mean, those stories, you know, I mean, I live in California. I've lived here a long time and and covering wildfires 10 years ago. I would, I would be so surprised when I would meet a family that had to evacuate quickly. You know, I would be really shocked covering the wildfires in the last few years. I'm, I barely even have to have one conversation before I hear a really harrowing, scary story about family, you know, let's, let's see two summers ago. Yeah. Family who like they wanted to take both their cars, they threw their kids in one, they were had to have their kids like huddle in the center of the car because the flames were so hot on the sides of the road that the 
they could get they were getting burned through the windows as they were trying to escape um and it's you know i think as journalists like that's what we're trying to to share with the world that you know maybe it's not you this time but it's a very good chance it could be you in the future no matter where you live um because these are becoming much more common events for for many parts of the world coming up how do people handle trauma when trauma itself is a culturally foreign concept. Just because we don't acknowledge it culturally, nor do we have the language to relay what trauma is or understand it, uh, doesn't mean it's not happening. That's up next. Living through climate disasters is becoming increasingly common across the globe. Beyond physical and property harm, surviving them can take a toll on mental and emotional health. In some cultures, the language for trauma as we think of it doesn't really exist. Lengi Pueva Sherelle Jackson helps us understand how trauma is processed in her culture. We don't have a word for trauma in Samoan. And in a way that translates to the way we deal with trauma and that we deal with it with humor. Um, and which is very intriguing when you're covering climate change and you're trying to relay the seriousness of the situation. Um, you know, internationally. You have some really dark climate jokes. <laughs> so dark. <laughs> so, um, so dark they're inappropriate when translated into English. So... <laughs> And, you know, uh, as, as a journalist from the islands, uh, straddling that that divide between how my local audiences receive climate change news with international audiences has always been quite intriguing because I know that when I translate to English and I report, say, uh, previously for The Guardian, that no, I shouldn't be mentioning the funny story of my uncle hanging on to the roof of the house while trying to hold his skirt on. And how that has always been hilarious for us. But when you're writing for an international audience who should be uh, sympathizing or who should be made to be aware of the seriousness of the situation, relaying those humor stories is not necessarily the best way to report um, the climate story from the Pacific. So it's it's very interesting. And that really ties to the, the issue of trauma. And I've done some work with the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. We brought them into Samoa to talk to journalists who are reporting on climate change and extreme weather events. And just because we don't acknowledge it culturally, nor do we have the language to relay what trauma is or understand it, uh, doesn't mean it's not happening. Because journalists who cover climate stories, um, who are first on site, who are there with the first responders, do experience a lot of trauma um, anywhere in the world. And so dealing with that means that we can, you know, assist journalists in better reporting and perhaps even having a more hopeful lenses in reporting on, on climate change. How is that related to the language and culture around race and the sense of self? So in Samoa and again in many Pacific Island countries, uh, the self is we and the self is collective. It's not about you. It's about your family, your village, your community. 
So you'll find that the experience of climate change is not about the individual losses, but rather the collective losses. And that's really why this issue is so severe for the Pacific culturally and as communities and as families, because the loss is not choked up to one family. It is the loss of a whole community. And with that is kind of like, I guess, in American terms, it would be like institutional knowledge. Um, so it's the historical, oral history and everything that comes with it. Um, it's the collective so trauma is experienced not just by the self, but also collectively as a family. Your experience as one person reflects on your family. So if one family is experiencing uh, flooding or they lose their home, we consider that a loss of by the entire village. So we've been talking about this on so many different levels. And, you know, as we're at this moment looking ahead for COP27 in Egypt, you know, loss and damage, who pays is a big part of the conversation, as it always is. So I'm curious about this particular moment where we're having increasing awareness, increasing experience of these climate impacts, how your work can help frame the conversation around who pays and equity and justice, both within neighborhoods and globally. Lauren? Yeah, I think um, coming into this COP, I mean, just look at what's happened this summer alone. You've got the flooding in Pakistan. You've got, you'd had heat waves in India. I mean, like the number of of just really incredible devastation that's happened um, recently, it's, these aren't just one-offs anymore, you know, like, and this is billions of dollars that it's going to take for people to, you know, rebuild. Um, so I think, yeah, this is going to be a, an interesting COP potentially, because obviously last year there was a ton of frustration over loss and damage. You know, you had a lot of, you know, countries coming forward saying like, we can't keep ignoring this. This is something that's every single year starting to happen. Lauren, you covered Mia Motley's gripping speech from last year's conference. Yeah. And I think the momentum has built even since then about what are the ways that countries can actually, you know, make this a reality. You know, there's a lot of countries that are really have a huge amount of debt as a, as a result of of disasters and other things. Right. Is it is it kind of a debt forgiveness mechanism is what she's bringing up to say that's how you could help countries deal with these kind of damages and damages going forward. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of frustration because there is a lot of reticence on the part of, of richer countries um, to take on anything that looks like liability to say, like, oh, it's our fault. Um, and that maybe they feel like would open the door to more and more um, costs in the future. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of progress is made. I think it, it really is going to be the flashpoint of this COP is what I think is going to happen. Sherelle, your thoughts on going into COP27 in Egypt, whether this issue of pay equity and loss and damage. Pacific Island leaders have been bringing up this issue for many, many years, you know, and it's made very little advancement at the negotiations. Loss and damage ultimately is a conversation that has to, unfortunately, the decision makers are not those who are, you know, uh, have to pay for it in terms of lives lost or identities lost or islands lost. So in a way, it continues to be a disempowering conversation for Pacific Islanders because they are not necessarily the ones who have the sway and the pull to, to advance a conversation on loss and damage. 
you know, ultimately the global north and high emitting countries do have to own up their responsibility. But as we all know that blockades and, uh, you know, they will continue to block this. So a lot of Pacific Island negotiators are not hopeful uh, moving into COP27 that there will be much change. But it doesn't mean that they go in without hope. Uh, Pacific Island negotiators met just last week as part of the preparatory meeting towards COP27, where Pacific Island negotiators come together to consolidate their joint uh, positions moving into COP27. And, and you know, this is, it continues to be an issue for the Pacific, and it feels like a long, long road ahead before anything is done for Pacific Island nations um, and in the climate front on loss and damage. Covering Climate Now is a collaboration of over 460 news and media partners aimed at driving a public conversation that creates an engaged public. And we're collaborating with Covering Climate Now on producing this episode. As we draw to a close here, I'd like to think about how your work centers on power and equity at the core of your reporting and how you try to bring that out and how you think about power and equity in your telling of these climate stories as they unfold. I mean, I think the data is very clear. Uh, disaster after disaster, people who have the means, you know, are able to put their lives to get together, back together. It's painful, but, you know, they can do it. The folks that don't have the means, that don't have the insurance, that didn't have savings, that didn't have the kind of like social structure around them to kind of rebuild and stuff. It's very clear that the kind of devastating impact these these disasters have like it we see it over and over and over with with disasters and so i i think you know that's kind of the thread of every climate story now that that i try to do right it is saying that this is an ex, it whatever inequity already existed in whatever part of society you're looking at i mean climate change is just the added layer that's going to make it worse Right. And Sherelle, your thoughts on that and also the potential for collaboration. You've spoke eloquently about the collective. And is there a need for more collaboration in climate reporting and media where there tends to be kind of, you know, competitive in spirit? So in the Pacific media, we're not necessarily competitive. We're very collaborative naturally. It's when we veer into international media that it becomes a dog-eat-dog world, as I've unfortunately experienced. So uh, first of all, I just want to mention that Covering Climate Now has been a game changer for climate journalism globally. Uh, and they have not only elevated climate change as a news beat uh, in the U.S., but also globally. I have a small news organization in Samoa that has benefited from the content shared by uh, Covering Climate Now. That collaboration, that spirit of sharing free content, of highlighting stories from undercovered areas is key in not just understanding climate crisis as a global issue, but also increasing the capacity of journalists in the global south um, and then also the the exchange between global north and global south uh, journalists. On the issue of equity, I want to talk about the responsibility. Pacific Islands are only responsible for 0.03 of emissions globally, yet stand to lose entire nations uh, as a result of it. The responsibility lies in the global north. Uh, and ultimately, the role of the journalist is to really highlight these issues, highlight the fact that, you know, there are those who are responsible 
and those who are paying for it and who are suffering as a result of it. Thank you. And I should also mention uh, that, Sherelle, you're reporting one in the category of radio podcast series for the Covering Climate Now Journalism Awards. And Lauren's reporting earned recognition as a finalist. So congratulations to both of you on that. So as we wrap here, you know, how are you personally navigating the stay or go? I have personal impulses of like moving from the Bay Area, moving north. Then I'm like, okay, calm down, Greg. How do you personally navigate that? Sherelle, you're laughing, so I'll go with you first. I, I laughed at the calm down Greg reference. <laughs> okay, so for me personally, I will never leave my land. Um, our people, our my family will never leave the land. We will stay there because the bones of my mother, of my father, of my ancestors are there. So we'll sink with it. Uh, At the same time, I do have children who want to make a difference in the world. So realistically speaking, there should still be a future that's secured for them, whether it be in Samoa or in a developed country where they may be safer on higher ground. Lauren, when you're doing your reporting, do you ever have thoughts of like, I got to get out of here while I can? (laughs) I mean, I, yes, I I always like to look at maps of California because if you map the wildfire and the flood and all the disasters and drought, um, I don't know where you would go necessarily (laughs) to avoid it completely. Um, But no, I think, I mean, I honestly do think a lot about um, there's so many people living in places where they're going to be hit with something, whether it's a flood or a fire. And the thing I think most about is evacuation, honestly, like, People have to be able to get out safely. And that's the thing we all need to work on um, in addition to, you know, the decisions that are tough building decisions in the future. Lauren Summers, a correspondent for NPR. Lengi Pueva. Sherelle Jackson is the climate collaborations editor for the Associated Press and host of the Impossible Choice podcast for The Guardian. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and the people you've talked to. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, thanks for having me. Langi Pueva Sherelle Jackson series, An Impossible Choice, when covering Climate Now's Journalism Award for Radio Podcast Series. It will be featured on Burning Questions, Covering Climate Now, premiering October 25th on Public Television's World Channel. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be awkward, difficult, sometimes depressing, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate change by giving us a rating or review if you're listening on Apple. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>